This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth planners and investment managers who offer unwavering support in challenging times. Visit CanDoWealth.com for more information. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. Each week we look at three pieces from the magazine with the writers behind them. I'm William Moore, The Spectator's Features Editor. On this week's episode, I'll be discussing the future of Scotland and the Union after Nicola Sturgeon's announcement of her resignation, looking at President Erdogan's reaction to Turkey's devastating earthquakes, and asking why America is obsessed with UFOs. First up, what happens after Sturgeon? In her cover piece for the magazine this week, The Spectator's political editor Katie Balls writes about what Sturgeon's announced exit means for the future of the Scottish independence movement. She joins me now alongside the political reporter and author of Disunited Kingdom, Ian McWhirter. Katie, so Nicola Sturgeon has announced that after eight years in charge, she is going to step aside as head of the Scottish National Party. But I want to ask you about her timings first. After all, it wasn't that long ago when she said she had plenty left in the tank. So what's changed? So I think you have a leader under pressure on several fronts. And therefore, when you're trying to work out what exactly was the you know the final straw for Nicola Sturgeon, I mean, there are just plenty to pick from. I think you can't escape the fact that independence, which is obviously the primary aim of the SNP, the Scottish National Party, has started to seem pretty out of reach. The polls... And there will always be some polls that are different. But there have been polls recently which have been quite discouraging, suggesting supporters dropping. But more than that, I think Nicola Sturgeon has a really restive party. He was saying, well, when are you going to deliver this? And we saw last year an attempt to say, well, we're going to have this referendum. She didn't have the power to. It ended up in a court battle. And while that gave politicians uh, for the SNP something to say, oh, Westminster once again frustrating the Scottish government, the will of the Scottish people, it also just highlighted how few options she had to deliver this. Then you had Nicola Sturgeon move to this idea of saying, well, in that case, we'll have a de facto referendum in the general election. That upset at least some of the SNP MPs in Westminster, because you look at some of the polls, you look at where Scottish Labour is, and you also look at the fact cost of living is really the issue that is most worrying voters. And they start to think, well, is this going to be almost I'm a sacrificial lamb because this isn't going to be the message that works? And then, of course, you have the multiple scandals. So you have the gender reform bill, which um, ultimately, I think, has backfired for Nicola Sturgeon. So that legislation, which I think she thought would show how progressive Scotland was, Rishi Sunak blocked. You had SNP's politicians saying, well, this is a cultural wage by the Tories. But it turns out more Scots than not agreed with Rishi Sunak for doing so. And then you have uh, you know, questions about loans involving her husband. You have ongoing baggage over Alex Salmond. And you have have things such as the fairy scandal and then you have the domestic record and you do get the sense and I think you can see some of the SNP saying this that almost this was a Jacinda Ardern moment and by that you can look at it two ways which is one is this a you know a wonderful leader who's seen as very progressive and great who's leaving because of personal pressures which is something Nicola Sturgeon also said in her speech or actually yeah they leaving before things get a lot worse for them and their party and before they are perhaps pushed. Well Ian I'd like to ask you the same question, if I may, about the timings of her announcement of her departure. I mean, the picture that Katie's painted there is 
quite a difficult one for Sturgeon. Popularity dropping for the S&P and for independence, all the hoo-ha around self-ID and so on. She's not exactly leaving on a high, is she? So is she leaving now because she anticipates it might only be getting worse? Well, everything that Katie says is true. And I mean, having known Nicola Sturgeon for what, nearly 25 years, you know, you could almost tell by her body language in recent months that, you know, time was was running out. She was obviously very frustrated with the, the situation, particularly about the gender recognition reform bill. But, I, you know, I, I was expecting her to go in the, in, the, in the medium term, but I never expected her to go quite as precipitately as she did. And that really does raise a puzzle because she's gone at absolutely the worst time. I mean, most people were thinking she would probably um, stand down around 2024 general election when she would have done her 10 years as uh, first minister. You know, if she was going to go earlier, she could have gone next month at this special conference, which will not have to be cancelled, which was meant to be into whether or not the SNP should have a de facto uh, referendum. And she could have used, turned that into a showcase for herself and said, after all, everything, um, you've seen my record, it's time to go. I've been thinking about this for a while. I mean, look, the controversy over um, this transgender rapist, Isla Bryson, being sent to a women's pr- prison has been absolutely disastrous for her. Every single press conference she's asked, you know, is he a man or a woman? And she can't answer it. Uh, even though she ordered him to be sent to a male jail. So that, that, is, that is what's in people's minds at the moment. And that's what's going to be her legacy, that she was putting rapists in a woman's prison, a terrible situation for a feminist to be in because her whole life has been about, as she puts it, defending women's rights and women's safety. And, and this just looks very, very bad. Now, she had an opportunity to have left a, a time for that to have passed away, for these controversies, slightly extraordinary controversies about the finances of the, the party involving her husband, uh, Peter Morrill, the CEO of the SNP. I mean, I don't know whether there's anything in that or not, but it did come up this weekend uh, in, in the newspapers. And again, it just looks very odd that this should, she should have made this really sudden decision because, look, nobody in the SNP was expecting this. There's no mechanism here for transition. There's no rival no one's been groomed to replace her. So this is a, a, a very, very serious crisis, not just for her, but for the independence movement itself. And the way and the manner in which she's gone, as I say, is very, very extraordinary. And everybody is going to be looking at what exactly was it this weekend that made her decide that she had to go now. Um, it, it's a very odd situation. Katie, Ian mentioned there that there's no plans in place for replacements. Uh, for Nicola Sturgeon as head of the SNP. What do you make of the whispers around the possible runners and riders to succeed her? I mean, could you could you take our listeners through some of the candidates? Yes, for sure. And then I'd love to hear um, Ian, Ian thinks of their chances. Because as we just heard, there's not a very clear air apparent. So you have people who are seen as more likely than not. You have Bookie's favourites. I think, for example, Angus Robertson's name comes up, now an MSP, formerly an MP, before Douglas Ross, you know, took a seat from him. And when he was in the Commons, he was the Westminster leader. He's very pro-EU, says, you know, an independent Scotland can be in the EU. That would be their, the case they would make. And somebody who who is confident and also just quite experienced. So I think that's seen as 
fairly safe pair of hands option. One that lots of people are talking about who I think after Angus Robertson is the second bookie's favourite, though of course things can change between now speaking and, and uh, listeners hearing this, is Kate Forbes. Now she is the finance minister who's been on maternity leave and I think she's seen as you know, a, a very much a rising star in the SNP. I remember having her on my Woman with Balls podcast, I'll get a plug in when I can, um, a, a few years ago. And she is someone who I think works in many ways but something that does come up when you speak about her is the fact that yes she is very much a Sturgeon ally but she is someone who is a strong Christian so some are already saying would she be the Tim Farron candidate if we remember when Tim Farron was um, in charge of the Liberal Democrats he could rarely get through an interview about someone saying well how does your Christianity mean uh, you feel about these uh, you know social conscience issues and even if he wasn't trying to make them Lib Dem policy it was hard to escape so I think perhaps people want to stop her uh, pushing for this I think very unlikely but you know some Tories say well we think Joanna Cherry would be the best candidate she is of course a a KC so very good at making arguments but the fact that she was so opposed I think to the gender reform bill has obviously made her various opponents she's also seen as an Alex Salmon ally then you have Himsa Youssef who is the Scottish Health Secretary and obviously has been front and centre perhaps not for particularly good reasons if you think about all these conferences that Nicola Sturgeon has been having on the state of the NHS in Scotland which uh, like here is in trouble but again, someone who I think is seen as, as a rising star, though, as I put in the cover piece, there are some who are saying, you know, when he gets worked up, he makes Dominic Raab look like Buddha. Um, so, <laughs> so that could be uh, one to look out for. And then there's a rumour in Westminster, you know, Stephen Flynn, for example, is the West is a new Scottish Westminster leader, and recently he successfully ousted Ian Black from the role. He was a key Sturgeon ally. So some said, well, we hear he might have ambitions, but. Of course, there's a slight catch there because they're not an MSP. So, Ian, out of the the names that that Katie just just mentioned, who do you think is the most likely to succeed? Well, I think it's a measure of their problem that um, when this is discussed, the first name that comes up is Kate Forbes, who is actually on maternity leave just now and is not even in the parliament. And as uh, Katie uh, rightly says, uh, she's a wee free, uh, 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 quite a conservative religious sect in Scotland, very opposed to uh, gender reforms and uh, in many respects would be regarded by some as being homophobic. So I think that would split the party because uh, if she was uh, to be, even to get near leadership, it would split the party because the the LGBTQIA uh, people who are quite well entrenched in the party and have been in the party leadership for a number of years and, you know, which is part of Nicola Sturgeon's problem perhaps, it would be intolerable for them to be uh, have Kate Forbes, a, a social conservative like Kate Forbes in charge of the party. Um, in the wider yes movement, Angus Robertson would be similarly controversial because he's regarded as, you know, the NATO. He was the one who ended the SNP's uh, long-standing opposition to the nuclear alliance uh, in NATO. And many of the unilateralists, the SNP is still the only really, uh, only real unilateralist party in left in the UK it's its constitution is unilateralist and they would they would uh, people in the wider yes movement on the left would be very unhappy at seeing Angus Robertson being in charge I mean it's a possibility that an MP in Westminster could take over it's a complicated procedure the choreography is very different but it has happened before in 2004 when Alex Salmon came back the last time uh, he was an MP in Westminster and he, he became leader after John Swinney's leadership collapsed. And that was when they put Nicola Sturgeon in as uh, the leader in um, uh, the Scottish Parliament. And the real wild card 
Well, Alex Salmon, you came back before. <laughs> he's now, he left the SNP, he's in, in another party. It would be unthinkable for Alex Salmond to become leader of the SNP again after he's uh, departed so many times in the past. But his, 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 his tactics in the near term are to set up this kind of Scottish convention to bring, as he says it, to bring all the independence parties back together so it is no longer dependent on one individual. It's no longer connected to the policies, the failed policies of the Scottish government. He's got plenty in his tank and he's going to be determined to show that <laughs> yeah. in the near future. <laughs> Katie, I wonder, when it comes to Sturgeon's departure, what you think it means for the union? I mean, obviously, right now, unionists are celebrating her exit since she's such a formidable opponent. But do you think that those who say that the independence movement is now effectively dead are being premature in their celebrations? I mean, yeah, I think it's obviously premature. I think there's some wishful thinking. And I think it's quite clear this could be very bad for the SNP. But politics is unpredictable, as we know, particularly after the past seven years. But we also, you know, when you had Alex Salmon's resignation, there were lots of celebrations around that, which did turn out to be very premature because then Nicola Sturgeon stepped forward. So I think it does present a huge challenge for the SNP. I think that it's quite clear the unionists were the happiest yesterday. Even, you know, Sturgeon's critics within the SNP, who um, I think probably would like someone else. So, you know, there's just a moment where you're not quite sure how things are going to shake out. Whereas you speak to, I mean, I think Scottish Labour are truly delighted. I think uh, Labour in Westminster are also truly delighted. And if you think about Keir Starmer's path to a majority, if this is now an opportunity where the SNP starts to turn to infighting or it really fractures in the way Ian was talking about, that it's, it's the votes are more likely to go to Scottish Labour generally than they are to go to the Scottish Conservatives and the party majority is made so much easier particularly if you think about a big majority if Scottish Labour can have a really big resurgence also I mean government ministers I think Nicola Sturgeon has been the most formidable opponent and there's been a frustration I've always picked up from Scottish Tory MPs when they felt some of the leaders they've had, and we had a few recently, I think Liz Truss, Boris Johnson come to mind, did not take Nicola Sturgeon seriously enough. And you'd have Scottish Tory MPs say, underestimate her at your peril. And you saw, I think even with the, I think during the pandemic, when the SNP were just running rings around the, the Westminster government, because they'd go to these meetings about restrictions, and then the SNP would announce, or there'd be a leak beforehand that would help the SNP and say, oh, but we all agreed we weren't going to talk about that. Um, and then it would be surprised. So so I think there is um, relief on the union side, but of course these things, you never quite know how things are going to look in a year or so. And the independence movement did not begin with Nicola Sturgeon. It existed long before. So it'd be a bit naive to think it ends with her, for sure. Thank you, Katie and Ian. Next, Elif Shafak writes a moving diary in The Spectator this week, reflecting on the terrible earthquakes that hit her homeland, Turkey, and neighbouring Syria last week. She joins me now alongside Adam Sampson, Turkey correspondent at the Financial Times. Elif, you write in your piece that this is not entirely a natural disaster, but one which was exacerbated by a human-built system of inequality, corruption, mismanagement and nepotism. Could you explain a little further for our listeners? Yes, I mean, I think we need to talk about this. Um, Of course, two earthquakes, two major earthquakes hit southern Turkey and northern Syria and the magnitude was immense and it would have created some considerable damage anywhere in the world. However, 
the death toll, the destruction, the disaster would not have been at such dire levels had the building regulations had been properly implemented. And I think this is exactly the subject that we need to talk about. So people who are in power in Turkey are also responsible. They cannot pass the buck so easily. So many contractors are responsible, but who gave those contractors permission to build these buildings uh, without proper regulations in earthquake zone is a question that needs to be asked. So, of course, it's a natural disaster, but at the same time, I think we need to talk about inequality, corruption, nepotism, mismanagement, Uh, And in my opinion, this is the right moment to have this conversation so that hopefully we will never, ever have such such catastrophic disasters uh, again. Adam, I'd love to get your opinion on these building contracts. And Erdogan obviously has tried to say that no country could have prepared for an earthquake of this magnitude. But do you agree with Elif there that actually that, that, that that is not true? And I wondered also, if I may ask you, what comparisons can be drawn perhaps to the reaction of the Turkish authorities this year to the reaction in 1999 when there was a a similarly very large scale earthquake and and I wondered if I could get your opinion on those things. Sure yeah Um, so I think on the first point absolutely wherever this scale of earthquake struck there was going to be huge destruction no doubt about it so that's definitely sort of the baseline but what's emerged is absolutely one of the key issues um, is exactly that it's were the building standards followed in any major way? You know, did contractors use the right types of materials? Were earthquake specialists working in these sort of very earthquake vulnerable areas? And then also lots of things, even after the buildings were built, for instance, we've heard a lot about sort of storekeepers who've taken columns out of buildings and things like that, that weren't sort of checked properly. And these are all really big questions. They become major, major political questions as well. It may be that we'll talk more about this later, but there were these amnesty programs that basically allowed you to sort of be forgiven for lots of very serious building issues. And the most recent one was in 2018, and it was one of the broadest ones ever. Um, And something like 7 million applications for amnesties were approved across all of Turkey. And it brought in something like $4 billion for the government. Um, It was seen as very much a populist measure before the 2018 elections, things like that. So a lot of people say that contributed as well. And the 2018 amnesty, by the way, wasn't the first one. They've gone back basically to the late 1940s. So, you know, you sort of had this layers upon layers of building issues. I think to get to your question about 1999... Briefly, there was a coalition government then, um, and it was heavily, heavily criticized for its reaction to the 1999 earthquake. And in fact, part of that is how Erdogan's um, Justice and Development Party was actually able to sweep to power in 2002, was partially based on that criticism, and and he came into power the following year. So if Erdogan is now in trouble, and especially with May elections coming up in Turkey, is there, in your opinion, a sort of sort of grimly ironic parallel then to be drawn between the time in 1999 where Erdogan sort of rode the wave of dissatisfaction with the government of the day to sort of victory and now he himself is coming under criticism for his own government's reaction to to this earthquake these earthquakes 
Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I think it's very, very early to tell. He's certainly taken quite a lot of criticism. At the same time, some people have said they've been more transparent than in the 1999 instance um, where the government was quite opaque about things like statistics. They've also been more open to international aid and all that. So I think it's a bit hard to tell at this point exactly how it's going to work. Erdogan also has a long history of sort of turning these crises you know, into positives. But for sure, this is some of the most serious criticism that he's had at a time when, by the way, even before the earthquake, he was under a lot of pressure because of, because of a cost-of-living crisis here. You know, a lot of people are very upset about the economic management and things like that. So, Elif, what, what do you think when it comes to Erdogan's prospects in the May election? He's obviously trying to pin blame on the individual contractors to distract from the, the government. Do the population see through this, in your opinion? I think the population sees through this because... Um, so many things are broken, have been broken in Turkey for such a long time. It might sound maybe old or unusual to talk about democracy when we're talking about natural disasters. We don't usually make this correlation, but I think there is a connection. In a country where there is proper democracy, functioning democracy, those in power can be held accountable. Um, there's transparency, there's rule of law and separation of powers. In Turkey, where there is no democracy, we do have elections, but we do not have a functioning democracy. All those other components like rule of law, separation of powers, free media, independent academia, women's rights, they're all broken. So I, I think there is a correlation there. Erdogan does, is doing what he's always doing. He's trying to shut down critics, shut down criticism. And uh, people who are his supporters are also... Uh, including trolls on social media, trying to attack critics, saying, accusing critics of being betrayers, traitors. But you cannot suppress this kind of sorrow. This is an immense catastrophe. Uh, and, and we need to talk about what has gone so, so badly wrong. Uh, and I find it ironic that he's trying to shut down this conversation. One more thing I think we need to mention I was in 1999 in Istanbul. I have experienced the Istanbul earthquake. You can never forget it once you've been in the midst of an earthquake uh, in the middle of the night. After that, lots of promises were made to the Turkish public. And also something called an earthquake tax has been accumulated, has, has been taken from citizens. But we do not know where that money has gone. And you can't ask this question because when you ask this question, all you hear is, well, we spent it where it had to be spent. What does that even mean? So again, there's no transparency. And as we've seen with these rescue efforts, they were not done properly. There, were, the, the, there was no coordination. In some places, major places, for hours, people had to beg for rescue teams to come. And how can people ever forget that? And in the meantime, they had to hear the voices of their loved ones from under the rubble. So whether Erdogan you know, postpones the elections, which he's going to try to do or not, people cannot forget this kind of sorrow and grief. Adam, I would love to get your, your opinion on the reaction of opposition parties in Turkey in terms of trying to challenge the lack of transparency from the Erdogan government. I mean, given the nature of Erdogan's suppression of critics and of, of opposition, are they able to have any success in challenging the government at this time? 
I mean, they've certainly been very, very vocal about it. Uh, you know, on Twitter, for instance, they've been coming out and sort of latching onto a lot of these building issues that we've been discussing. They've heavily criticized the amnesty issue, for instance, and said, you know, that was just before the election. So clearly it was a political maneuver, that sort of thing. Um, you don't see it much when you're watching the television here, uh, which is obviously heavily state influenced, but you certainly see it on Twitter. It'll be interesting to see what happens if the elections do happen in May. The The opposition has formed this coalition of six parties that's called the Table of Six. They still haven't even been able to name a candidate of who's going to sort of represent all of these six parties. They were sort of holding off till the last minute because they were quite concerned about how much criticism they were actually going to get when they announced a candidate. Now the earthquake has delayed that further. So I think that's going to be very, very interesting to see in coming weeks. I mean, it does seem possible that they'll they'll try to delay it. Both, you know, potentially for Erdogan political issues, but also because there's these logistical issues of like, how do you get all these people to vote in this area that's been so badly hit by the earthquake? And just finally, Elif, looking again to these uh, presidential elections, whether they happen in May or if they're if they're delayed, there's quite a lot of um, commentators now, particularly in Western media, who are sort of hopeful that Erdogan might be able to be. Uh, defeated in this election because of criticism he's come under for his reaction to the earthquakes. Do you think that that is possible or do you think that is wishful thinking from a Western media that doesn't quite perhaps acknowledge the degree to which Erdogan has managed to subvert criticism and democratic processes in Turkey? Yeah, I mean... As, as I mentioned, the democratic institutions and norms have been broken in Turkey for such a long time. Uh, and that changes everything. When you don't have a free media, when you don't have properly functioning separation of powers, when you have a complete monopolization of power for such a long time, unfortunately, that breaks the society, the fabric of the society as well. However, I think Turkey is an immensely complicated country. It's a beautiful country with beautiful people. The civil society is amazing. Maybe we don't hear their voices, but they are there, you know. The youth in Turkey, they want a proper democracy. They deserve a proper democracy. Women are there. Minorities are there. Again, we don't hear their voices, but they're there. So I would never, ever identify this government with the entirety of Turkey's populations, you know. Um, and that's why that's the part of me that's more hopeful. And there's always room for change. And I think it is time for change. Many, many people are saying enough is enough. We deserve a proper democracy. What makes me more depressed is, of course, the level of politics, the level of political elite in Turkey. Uh, there's a very macho, very ultra conservative, very religious, very nationalistic culture uh, that makes it a little bit more difficult to be optimistic. But when I look at the people, when I connect with the people, I'm always more hopeful. Well, Elif and Adam, thank you very much indeed for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. Finally, in the magazine this week, Andrew Stutterford writes about America's fascination with unidentified flying objects. He joins me now alongside Mike Garrett, director of the Jodrell Bank Centre for Astrophysics. Andrew, could you briefly take us through your assessment of where this fascination with extraterrestrial life comes from? Sure. And I think I think one thing to, to say right, right at the beginning is it's not unique to the US. It actually, it, it goes back to the Middle Ages and um, before then, in fact. And uh, you also see in the, in the 20th and 21st century, you've seen it in Europe. But the US has undoubtedly been the epicenter of it. 
the start the, the starting point was there was the, the, the they didn't have the term then but it was the it was a flap which you call a ufo flap uh was in the 1890s late 1890s when there were reports almost certainly untrue of massive uh, airships flying across the, the west coast that was the beginning of it but really what i think got things going was two things. The the first is that we we were moving into a more technological age. And uh, if you look at, you know, rockets were, uh, Robert Goddard was was shooting off uh, rockets um, uh, in Massachusetts originally. Space travel was becoming a a more than theoretical possibility. And it caught the imagination. And you had in the 20s and 30s, the great age of pulp science fiction in the U.S., and it, it was pretty rubbish at the beginning, but then it became very good. Then you had the V2s flying around. And then really what got it going, though, was in 1947, a businessman called Kenneth Arnold saw, he said, nine bright objects uh, as he was flying around Mount Rainier, which is in the, the, the far, far west of the US. When he came back, he mentioned, you know, when he landed, hey, I saw something uh, weird out there, nine flying objects. And people in the war had already been talking about what they called Foo Fighters, which were strange light formations they flew around. But this was different. And he said that they, I can't remember the exact words, it's in the piece, they flew, the way they flew is they skipped across like saucers. And that just caught the imagination. And I think, to answer your question, why has this so caught on in US? There are, you know, we can go into more details. But one of the reasons, firstly, the story was there. Secondly, what would have once been a local rumour became transmitted across the country by the mass media. But also Hollywood got in on the act very, very quickly. And people were ready to believe to sound like the X-Files. They then had a narrative provided for them by dubious eyewitnesses. And the media then furnished the storyline. And you had the Cold War paranoia beginning to get going in the late 40s, or not paranoia, getting going in the late 40s. And that meant there was also a willingness to believe nasty things might be coming down from the heavens, whether they be from the Soviets or from our Martian friends. And Mike, I wonder what kind of an effect this sort of popular culture depiction of or interest in aliens and otherworldly life has upon the world of astrophysics. Are there people that you meet in your profession who have been drawn to become uh, astrophysicist because of such a kind of cultural background or or, uh, or, or, or or are you all sort of far above that sort of speculation in extraterrestrial life because of the kind of interest in cold science? Well, I mean, I think everyone's interested in the, in the question about whether there's other intelligent civilizations out there. And I, I think that is a draw, you know, that brings people into astronomy and, and astrophysics. I think what Andrew mentioned also, science fiction is another thing that, that draws people into, into that area. I think probably UFOs and, and ufology, etc., is something that we don't treat terribly seriously. Not to say that there aren't things up there that we, that we don't know, but that the chances that they're actually sort of other intelligent life forms trying to make contact with us seems unlikely. So I think we want to distance ourselves from, you know, that kind of wacky element. But I think some of the other things that are associated with this topic 
are things that you know attract people into astronomy and astrophysics. Yeah, and, and, and I and I think one of the reasons that UFOs, in a sense, took the form that they did. And your point, I totally agree with everything you said. I I certainly think that you could have you have extraterrestrial life out there somewhere. But I just would be surprised if it had come passing by. And particular, why would they always go to trailer parks? I mean, they're, they're, <laughs> they're, 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 you know, you would think that you'd at least have a go at the White House. But I, I also think that, in a way, it's a paradoxical tribute to science, uh, UFOs, at least as they began in the 40s and the 50s. There was a willingness to believe, and you, you see this, by the way, particularly in America, you began to see a sort of spiritual overlay, which has come and gone and come again in, 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 in UFOs. But if you like, it was a quasi-religion for a scientific age. It, it, was, it, it was really a tribute to science, even though the science itself was, for the most part, uh, absolute junk. Uh, Mike, I would love to get your opinion on that. Do you think that UFO sightings are, in fact, a a tribute to science rather than an insult to science, or if not science itself, perhaps at least a tribute to the scientific age. I mean, I guess, I guess in some ways it is because people are interested in those kind of things, and and I think that suggests people are interested in science and, as you mentioned, you know, this scientific age that we that we live in. And I think people maybe also feel a little bit frustrated that they don't fully understand how it works, that they want to actually contribute to it in some way. And I think UFO spot, spotting is a little bit, they, they might feel that they're actually contributing in some way or that they have a valid opinion in some way. I, I mean, I think everyone has a valid opinion on the question of whether, you know, there's life out there in the universe because, I don't know the answer to that. Andrew doesn't know the answer to that. Um, no one knows the answer to that. So I think everyone does have a valid opinion. That's why I find it such a interesting topic. But yeah, the, the, the ufology stuff, I think, is a sign that people do want to sort of, you know, have their opinion, have their say on this topic, and that this is one of the ways that they can actually kind of get out there and, and make some statements about it. Do you think, Mike, as well, there's there's almost something more reassuring, perhaps, to think that sights you can't explain in the sky may be of extraterrestrial origin rather than the origin of, let's say, for example, a, a Chinese spying weather balloon, uh, you know, a sort of hostile nation trying to trying to spy on mm. yours, you know, but the, the idea that it might actually be something almost miraculous from the stars perhaps as a kind of um, psychological value of reassurance to it. What do you think about that? Yeah, no, I think that's an interesting take on it. It's almost it's almost a compliment. At least I find that a compliment that, you know, everyone is thinking and, and actually people almost assume that there there is extraterrestrial sort of intelligence and life out there. And if it's out there, then, you know, possibly it's it's here as well or it's visited here in the past or maybe even at the moment. So it, I, I think it shows a kind of openness that, that humankind has for the idea that intelligence might well be out there, that, you know, we don't have this arrogant idea that, um, you know, we're the only ones, mm. which I find hard to kind of accept that we would be the only ones. So I think, I think that's positive. And I think also maybe it's a little bit spiritual 
that that people are looking for something that goes beyond you know what they would expect you know the everyday stuff of military activities or 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 whatever it might be with china or russia or whomever that they're actually looking for something that goes a little bit beyond that 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 takes them out of themselves to think about things which are just beyond the the, the normal daily existence so um, I suppose you could view it as actually being really a, a positive trait of the of the of the human species to be like that. Well, the final, very big and cosmic question I'd like to ask, if I may, is: Will we ever have, in your opinion, contact with extraterrestrial life? Mike, do you want to go first, as you're the scientist? Um. Well, I mean, I think it depends what you mean by contact, but obviously having a conversation is going to be difficult just because of the vast distances involved. You know, nothing travels faster than the speed of light as far as we know. So that means that if they are, you know, far away, which we expect them to be somewhere in the Milky Way galaxy, but but rather far away, it will be different, difficult to have a conversation but of course, you know, if they can actually travel between the stars, which is difficult, but certainly it's not impossible from, you know, the laws of physics. It's, it's something that can be done, but it, it, it takes a lot of resource and a lot of energy to do it. Potentially, maybe they could one day come visiting here. I don't think they'll come with with balloons that float in the in the upper <laughs> atmosphere. I think they'll be... Um, but you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't rule it out. I just think it'll be rather different from the from the UFO phenomena that we that we all sort of know and and love. I think it'll be something really quite different that might be even difficult to imagine because this intelligent species or race or, or civilization or whatever you want to call it will likely be so much more advanced than us if they can come and visit us that they'll be operating in sort of probably a, a different plane from the one that we operate in and we'll have different technologies and, and different ways of doing things. So it might almost be difficult to to recognize them at some level. Um, so I think it could happen. I mean, I hope it does one day. It's certainly the sort of thing that I'm, I'm working on to somehow make that contact, even if it's remote contact by picking up electromagnetic signals from distant civilizations in our own galaxy. When that will happen, I don't know. All I know is that at the moment, the technology that we're building for, you know, SETI research just gets better and better. uh, And it does so almost exponentially. So we're getting closer and closer to making that discovery if there is a discovery to to make. And Andrew? Yeah, I mean, I I, I think I very much agree. And, 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 you know, I love the the search. There's a place in Socorro, New Mexico, which has these huge, this huge radio telescope array. And if you go, if you go there, it, it's it's an amazing sight, and rather moving actually. I mean, there's always a debate as to where over here anyway in the U.S. as to whether we should actually be hiding from the aliens because, uh, so to speak, are we the Native Americans? Are they Columbus? That could turn out not so well. So there's quite a school of thought that says, or a school of thought that says, we should keep quiet. But I think our radio transmissions are shooting away. Let so sleeping dogs lie, I, almost. Yeah, yeah, and I, 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 as I said, I don't think that they've been here, and I, and and I think distance is, is a long way. I I would be very surprised. I mean, one of the things I think that's been something I love looking actually are the pictures in the uh, telescopes in space. I mean, just 
astounding. Mm. And I, I, I'm sure there's something there. But it's so far away. And I think that uh, Mike is right, that if something comes our way, I think you may raise a very interesting possibility. We might not even know it's happened. But I think that they will come in a, they may, they may because of, just because of transport or how they do it, they may come in a very different way to what we expect. Andrew and Mike, thank you very much indeed for joining me. Thank you. And that's it for this week. As ever, if you've enjoyed the podcast, pick up a copy of The Spectator to read all the stories in full. I'm William Moore, and I hope you'll join me again next week.